You have 24 minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. Dance has communication. Dance has protest. Dance has a place of warmth and community. How have we come to dance together, and why is it important to both our personal and cultural histories? In this episode of 24 Minutes, we speak with author, journalist, and broadcaster Emma Warren. Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor is her latest book. If you love to dance but have not taken a moment to consider why we dance and why we gather with others in dance, here are 24 Minutes with Emma Warren. I'll start with just a first question. Through many articles and your your now books, uh, radio broadcasts, you've been documenting and curating grassroots music and culture for a few years. Decades. What? Decades. <laughs> I was being polite. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm proud of my long view. What was in your thoughts or your soul that ignited you to explore this particular topic in your new book, Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor? Interesting question, because it wasn't obvious that I should write about the dance floor, even though it was obvious that I should write about the dance floor. And that says something about the ways in which the benefits of the space um, is in, are invisible, even to those of us that know about it and we know about it body and soul. Um, I had a phrase in my last book, Make Some Space, which described the dance floor um, as or, or dancing as medicine. And when I wrote that, I thought it was a bit of a stretch, but I also knew that I believed it. And a lot of people responded to that line in particular, dancing is medicine. And so I thought, um, when Faber asked me if I had any ideas for a, for a book, I thought, you know what, maybe let me just take that phrase and let me just like dig into it and dig behind it and see what's there. And it turns out there was a lot there. Mm. The book is 400 pages long, you know. <laughs> it's longer than I expected it to be. Actually, a fair bit of that are references because I wanted to leave a little Hansel and Gretel trail for people who cared more about uh, more of the detail. But yeah, it was just I dug in and I discovered a lot that is valuable and invisible. Right, and the footnotes are a very nice addition. It gives it does give a um, a cookie trail, uh, lets people do a little bit more of a deep dive. It's nice to have that. You know, there have been countless cultural influences in dance, but the image of us as children in our elders' kitchens moving around to music is a very strong one. And when I see children that, you know, that's that hear music and they just start to wiggle, you know, tell us a little bit about your personal history with dance. And in fact, the theme dance your history (laughs) <laughs> really resonated with me. And that's important, right? So I'll, I'll answer the question then. So I suppose there are two things there. One is dance your history, which is a phrase courtesy of the incredible Tony Basil, who I was lucky yeah. enough to interview. You know, what a storied human being, what places Tony Basil has been and influenced. And I was very, very lucky to be able to get some time with her on the phone. And she gave me that phrase, dance your history, which she herself got from the dancer Link, who was part of Mock Top. Uh, amazing hip-hop dancers Um, and by dance your history she means dance like you basically she means we cannot help but express who we are and where we've come from when we move and she's saying step into that and and that's been a very useful framework for me to understand and to inhabit and to use the other thing is about me as a child all of us as children being danced around by our 
our loved ones, our, our grown-ups. And I have definite memories of being held by my dad and danced around the kitchen or bedroom. I remember very being very, very small and there being thunderstorm and the thunder being so loud that I was frightened. And I remember being kind of picked up and danced around the bedroom by my dad in a way that was physically soothing and emotionally soothing. And it does seem to be something that people really resonate with. Not, not everybody would have been lucky enough to have a, a warm and friendly adult around like that. But luckily, many of us have. And I, I think we know that feeling, being held and moved and danced around. Yeah. And I, the idea of being in the kitchen with a parent or a grandparent mm. as music is playing from their younger years and seeing yeah. them kind of move around and joining yeah. them is also yes so many people have spoken about enjoying watching their often their mothers you know we know often the, the domestic labor lands with the women quite often and, and people were describing watching their mothers having a little bop as they were cooking and and absorbing the music of their parents youth through that very domestic environment and i think i'm drawn to to recognizing those environments as valuable but, you know, I know that the nightclub dance floor is valuable and I know that the school disco dance floor is valuable, but I also think the kitchen dance floor is valuable. And maybe yeah. that's a perspective I bring with my with my gender, because I think, again, it's hard to see that as valuable because often, you know, women's work is not always so valued, is it? So we should not only read to our children, we should dance with our children as yes. well, perhaps as a message there. Absolutely. And I'm really intrigued by the theme of the struggle for the morality of our youth. When it comes to dance, you know, it, it's taken place around the world, but in the States, the, the story has been told through popular culture, like in the movie Footloose, you know. Yes, yes. It was also evident in the 1920s when automaker Henry Ford spent a fortune uh, promoting square dancing, if you're familiar with the American dance form, uh, and country music as a, as a means to combat jazz and uh, and the unwholesome influence on american life that was brought to us by um ragtime and jews and blacks but before henry ford did that and a lot of people aren't familiar with that story but before henry ford did that in wales and ireland and what you know northern ireland and england there was this before the partition there was this thing going on tell us a little bit about that because you not only had the the influence of um of uh, trying to persuade people away from jazz and perhaps the racial overtones, but you also had Very political much so. overtones, yeah. right? Political overtones as well, right? All sorts. I mean, the story of the downward jazz movement in Ireland, uh, pre and post partition, is strong <laughs> and very resonant because the state will frequently try and squash the dance. For example, the new right wing government in Italy under Giorgio Maloney. One of their first acts was an anti-rave law. And when you call something anti-rave, you make it sound reasonable, but really it's just a law against organising a dance without a licence, which is exactly what happened in Ireland uh, in 1935 with the Public Dance Halls Act, which was partly about yeah the racist combating of new music, explicitly racist often. Um, it was also about controlling bodies, often women's bodies, um, and the young men or other young women who may... Um, affect their morals um, and this was this game this uh, this is also a way that often um, right-wing politicians will get a kind of easy win because if you if you say i'm against immorality and the young are revolting then that's an easy way to get people some people to come with you so yeah there's so much to say about about that northern irish example but 
this this happened all over kind of Eurocentric countries, you know, America, um, Australasia, uh, all those European and uh, European at a remove type nations, where at that time dancing was conflated with immorality and laws were built and the people attempted to squash the dance, but of course it never worked because the dancers will dance and they will find a way always, even in the most repressive conditions. So I thought it was fascinating and I thought actually it spoke very clearly to things that happened many, many decades afterwards. Can I tell you just a bit about being in Northern Ireland recently in the village of Cushendal? Please do. Thank you. So Cushendal is uh, in the Glens of Antrim, culturally extremely interesting place and, and beautiful as well. And I met some people there who um, who ran youth club discos in the late 1960s. A group of teenagers, age 15 and 16, decided they need they were part of a new a new like upsurge of young people with new ideas, and they wanted their hair a bit longer. And so they made a committee to be able to run a youth club disco, and they put a note in the parish newsletter to request an adult to support them to write the lease on the building. They did this. They ran the discos. 15-year-old on the door, 16-year-old DJ, a 13-year-old building the disco lights out of a, a kind of starter from a kitchen flickering light. Incredible things, incredible opportunity to do, make, express. And uh, the guy who ran it had a visit from the parish priest when he was eating his dinner with his mummy and said that the village, that some of the villagers, some of the parish members have been watching the dance and um, they can't see much wrong with it, but they have seen two boys underage drinking in the car park and you must stop this. And you must do an announcement against underage drinking, otherwise we're going to close you down. Unfortunately, this teenager was brave enough and sturdy enough to say to the parish priest, no, we're not making an announcement. That's not what it's for. And they were able to continue, but they experienced that pressure of the, the moral minority um, wanting to stop them. Three decades later, same village, same hall, a different group of teenagers, unbeknown, you know, without knowing about the histories, did the same thing. But by this time, it's like the early days of, well, not early days, it's like house music, what became known as rave. And again, same thing. They get the space, they make the space that the young people want and need. And the moral minority attempt to close it down. So in a tiny way, that speaks to the way that faith organizations will try and uh, control the bodies of their congregation, even in an environment as in this portion of Northern Ireland, where the whole community is experiencing structural oppression. So the oppression comes in all directions, but the dancers will dance. Well, and I love the fact that um, they will dance. And we even have an example here in my hometown in the States where I've got a producer of dance events um, um, can, does afters, after parties, and um, they're non-alcohol. But he's having a hard time getting permitted because the ordinances don't allow for such a thing, even though there's no alcohol served. For young people who just get their night started at 2 a.m. when other places are closing down, it's like it's all residual from Henry Ford. And that, if we were square dancing, it'd be a different story, yes, I think. It's, it's, oh, yes, it, it is residual, but it's also just what happens. Um, the nighttime is a place of uh, pollination. This is an idea that a friend of mine, Kieran Yates, she's a brilliant writer. She has a book called All the Houses I've Ever Lived In coming very shortly but she's also like me someone who spent a lot of time on the dance floor and she brings that knowledge with her and she said to me we need to rethink what the night is for actually in, in the night time you, uh, you have bats it's a time for bats bats are one of the primary pollinators we need the night time in order for things to uh, flourish and I thought that was such a brilliant idea 
and and it's not just about reframing the dance floor it's also about reframing the night isn't it it's not a place of danger as a place of warmth a place where new things can grow something essential can happen i agree with you 100 and uh, things that can happen at night are creative mm-hmm. and bonding mm-hmm. and celebratory and uh, social in ways yeah. that the uh, daylight hours are not Absolutely. your work and your travels have taken you to several countries mm-hmm. where certain experiences and information have given you additional insights about mm-hmm. social dance traditions mm-hmm. i'm thinking specifically of the time you spent in africa that you write about in your book and, and time in the states can you relay a couple of instances sure. in those travels that gave you like aha mm-hmm. moments mm-hmm. Well, specifically south africa um, where I was visited on three occasions about a year or so apart, working with grassroots social innovators who were coming up with community solutions to problems like, say, you've got a problem with litter. Well, this woman was like, right, I'm going to collect the litter and I'm going to turn them into school bags because kids haven't got school bags, but I'm also going to add reflective strips on the back because children are often walking on distances and that makes them more visible. That will help avoid traffic accidents, that sort of thing. So I wasn't going for anything particular dance-related. But there was a lot of dancing and the first time I went, I brought with me kind of my whiteness um, and questions about my whiteness and assumptions about who dances and who dances well. And whilst I'm very used to being in the company of people from many different backgrounds and I'm, I have a, a great deal of understanding about what communities of colour have brought to the dance floor and queer communities and all the communities that experience marginalisation, I'm still bringing my whiteness to all those situations. And in South Africa, also as a white woman in South Africa, not obviously European as opposed to South African, um, or not immediately anyway, um, I was having to navigate different parts of my sort of ethnicity experience. So the first time I was just kind of like, oh my God, I'm not going to be a good enough dancer. And so I just, you know, I was like embarrassed about myself. So I didn't really dance very much, even though I really wanted to. and then on my way home, I just thought, you know what, that's ridiculous. No one expects me to be good. No one expects anything from me. I'll just, if I go back again, I'm going to dance and I'm going to enjoy what is being offered and I'm going to bring what I've got. And I did. And I just had this lovely experience where this guy called Safiso that I'd met, he ran one of these projects. His was about um, people who collect trash on an informal basis. They don't have good enough carts to transport it. And he built these carts. He's a brilliant guy. And um, we were out one night and then he just sat down next to me at the end of the night. I just flopped down and said, Emma, you're a much better dancer than last time. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) Literally what he said to me. I hadn't told him anything. I'd I'd not communicated any of this verbally. I just decided in my head, you know what, I've got got more than a basic two-step. It's fine. I'm just going to bring what I've got. And also on that trip, we went to a a nightclub in... um, Langa, which is one of the townships, although I don't know why they're not called cities because these are like, you know, Soweto has a university in it. Why is it not just called a city? That's right. perhaps a whole other conversation, but the language, right. the language continues some of the economic divisions, perhaps. Anyway, we're at this club in Langa and I'm just having a little dance and then a woman came, came up and danced at me and it felt like um, quite a deep interaction because, like, frankly, she was quite moody. <laughs> Fair enough, you know, what am I doing there? who am I? Where do I come from? What intentions do I bring? Why am I there? And so we communicated some of who we were. I communicated some of who I am, some of my, you know, South London experience just by moving with her. Mm. And, you know, at the end, she kind of like tossed a a half 
compliment, maybe like even a quarter compliment at me. At least you have some rhythm. And walked off, but the interaction was meaningful for me at least because in her own way, she quite rightly questioned why I was there through movement. And then she was satisfied with the answer. It was okay, I think. <laughs> well, and that reminds me that's kind of a dance as a form of communication. And certainly through several cultures, that's um, American Indian culture, that uh, dance as a form of communication is a celebration long before we ever moved it into buildings. But uh, you also write a little bit about um, dance as protest and the uh, electric slide event outside number 10 Downing Street. I Loved that. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, how that came about, and what effect it had? Well, I was very pleased to unpick some of the story about the electric slide because it baffled me a bit. I didn't understand how it had become so central in um, like UK community celebration dance floors. By that, I mean things like weddings, work dues. Not really so much in the club, but definitely in places where people just gather together. I didn't really know how it happened because it seemed to happen at a certain point, which I was demographically uh, older than. So people who are my age, I'm 51, people who are my age didn't grow up doing the electric slide, but people who are like 38 and under did. So I was like, what the hell, how did that happen? And I unpicked the how it happened and then I'm pretty sure that it came, it kind of was transmitted to the UK through the film The Best Man um, and the kind of final scene of that, and it kind of percolated out into wedding parties, often those uh, that relate to the Black Atlantic. And often, particularly in London, we have um, often like our weddings are often quite, um, you know, people who have different heritages are often marrying each other or going out with each other. Right. And so often a kind of very London wedding is going to have people whose parents or grandparents come from, bring other lineages with them. The electric slide also has a, an aspect to it, which is about stamping out presence. I am here and we are here and we are actually quite many and we know how to move together. And so when I see it being enacted outside 10 Downing Street or as part of a protest, it's a way of saying we're here, we're not going anywhere, we know what to do and you may not know how to join in. And so the comfort of knowing the dance is, or knowing how to move in it, is also a kind of um, a question to you. If not, are you going to join us or not? Well, so there's a reason it. why they call it a political movement. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so something like the Toyi Toyi in South Africa, which when I checked with a, a South African friend of mine, she said you couldn't really call it a dance but it was a series of, it's like movement and chanting that was often used in a protest setting, so much so it was banned by Mugabe over in Zimbabwe. But in an apartheid context, the toy toy would be a way that people would move with intention um, and drama and ownership of the space, and, and that in itself is powerful. Well, so the global coronavirus pandemic happened. I believe this is probably when you wrote much of your book, is that correct? That's right, yeah. And and we were for a time there no longer allowed to dance with each mm -hmm. other. Did the desire to connect through dance help lead us out of that wilderness? And then what was the role of TikTok in all of this and dance on TikTok? Well, I'd say, number one, um, 
what the pandemic did was those of us who have spent in, those of us who spent um powerful time on the dance floor we know it matters we know it in our bodies we know but it felt like a whole load of people who didn't know it through their bodies um, understood it during the pandemic you know people uh, like the media people with structural power were suddenly missing something that they didn't know was valuable so i felt like the pandemic made it possible for people who don't know to get to know and in a way that's useful um, in terms of tiktok i just think i just love the fact that so many people are bringing the dance they have to their phones and sharing it um, i'm not really like into this idea of oh, internet dance equals less real dance or what is real anyway i just think amazing there's loads and loads of young people moving their bodies sharing it and i think that's really encouraging and dance your history, even if it's on TikTok. Exactly. I'm speaking with author, editor, journalist, and broadcaster Emma Warren. Her new book, Dance Your Way Home, A Journey Through the Dance Floor, has recently been published by Faber. Um, you can ask for it in a bookstore if you can, particularly a locally owned and operated bookstore. If not available in your favorite locally owned bookstore, it is available online in print. On and in the ebook and audiobook, you can mm -hmm. also learn more at Faber, F A B E R dot C O dot U K. This will be my final question of you. And it's been a delight to speak with you. I'm so looking forward to this. And I did feel like we are kindred spirits, but kindred spirits for sure. I really I value the work you're doing because it's hard to explain why this stuff matters. And all of us that are in the business of amplification, uh, we're kindred to each other, aren't we? I agree. And I think that we're going to need this coalition as we move forward in your countries and in mine dance your way home this can have many meanings to many different people and cultures yeah. how are you hoping that readers would connect with that title mm, that's a lovely question the title actually came from my love of house music and i was looking for words around house that i could play with in the title and then i was like house home okay it kind of came to me through that route so it came to through my love of chicago house music basically so the title kind of had that lineage i think what i want people to feel from that is the idea of not just the dance floor as a technology of togetherness but the dance of the technology of both togetherness and solidity that dancing can allow you to become can come home to your body can come home to yourself which is the most essential form of sanctuary isn't it and the way people are responding to it suggests that i may have succeeded at least in some small way and that makes me feel really good that the labor and the effort and the sweating the lines and the ledges that i tried to build in for everybody and the layering that i tried to apply to it has worked it's transmitting what i wanted to transmit We're here, we're not going anywhere. Are you going to join us? This has been Season 2, Episode 12 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit us at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White.